Okay, we're going to get right into um, our sermon this morning, and I ask you a question to begin with, and the question is this, have you ever doubted your salvation? Don't lie about it. (laughs) I think everybody has. I think uh, most people, if they're honest, there is um, a time in their life where they wonder, is this all true? Do I really have it right? Have I believed properly? Am I bearing fruit? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Some people struggle um, very, very badly with doubts about their salvation. And it's our hope this morning that uh, our passage this morning is going to clear up a lot of those questions that you have so that you can see the incredible deep truth of salvation that uh, our Lord has given to us. This passage that we're going to look at is... uh, the last public ministry of Jesus in John's gospel. He is uh, uh, going to go away for a little while. He's going to return to raise Lazarus from the dead, but he's pretty much going to stay hidden um, until um, Passover, which comes some months later. Um, In the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the last week that Jesus is on earth after the triumphal entry, he spends a lot of time teaching in the temple. Uh, yeah, in the temple. But John closes the story of the public ministry here, and he has his purposes in doing. And so um, this is a very, very important passage for us to understand um, the end of this public ministry as John uh, brings it to a close, and also the significance of the passage for us in terms of our salvation. In fact, um, I was reading one of the commentaries uh, this week, And just in an off sentence, Leon Morris says this, which sums it all up. The work of the Messiah is to bring eternal life, a life which can never be lost, because the Messiah is one with God. That's all we are saying this morning. That's all this passage is saying to us. The work of the Messiah is to bring eternal life, a life which can never be lost. Why? Because the Messiah is one with God. Now, there's a lot to say this morning. I have a lot to say. I hope you have your pens ready because there are going to be lots of notes. But it's a very, very important passage to to deal with this subject that we call the the subject of uh, eternal security. So I know you just sat down, but I ask you to stand as we read John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. It's a longer section. But please give attention to the reading of God's Word, John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. At that time, the Feast of the Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I And the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. 
Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in the law? I said you are God's. If he called them God's to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Therefore they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Father, we ask your great anointing of your spirit to teach us, to encourage us, to assure us that we are your children, that you are our father, that we are your sheep, and that our good shepherd is Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. One of my favorite professors in seminary was J. Dwight Pentecost, and he wrote a book called uh, The Words and Works of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in this passage are the words and works of Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, the words and works of the Father and the Son together. Um, We're going to see what we would call the penultimate rejection of the religious leaders of Jesus. The final rejection is going to come um, when Jesus is betrayed and when he's put to death. But this is the last public rejection of Jesus and later on, they're going to reject him even more. But the words and the works of Jesus Christ, what we're going to look at this morning are the words and the works of the Father and the Son. The words and the works of the Father and the Son. And the words and the works of the Father and the Son, first and foremost, are rejected by Israel. Israel rejects these words and these works of the Son and of the Father I want to spend a little bit of time on the setting here in verses 22 through 23 because it's really quite interesting and I think helpful to understand. Verses 22 and 23, at that time the Feast of Dedication uh, took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple of the portico of Solomon. The Feast of Dedication was three months after the Feast of Tabernacles that we spent a lot of time talking about. Passover is about four months away at this point. So the Feast of Dedication is in Jerusalem, but it's not one of the feasts that is prescribed by scriptures. You don't see it in the law. It didn't appear anywhere in the law. It came by the history of Israel. In about 168 B.C., um, the Greek Empire, under uh, uh, many uh, uh, portions, which, of course, was the, the Macedonian Empire, that was started by Alexander the Great, uh, ruled the world. The Seleucid Empire was very near to Israel. 
And there was a man by the name, a leader of the Seleucid Empire, Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means an appearing, and he was given that title, Antiochus the Epiphanes, because he thought he was God. He thought he had all power. He invades Jerusalem. It was a horrible invasion because they, they sacked the temple. They desecrated the temple. They stopped worship. They stopped everything that Israel was doing. They sacrificed pigs on the altar. You think of anything worse? In, the, in, in Jerusalem, in the temple of Jerusalem, sacrificing pigs, forcing the priests to eat pork, shoving it down their throats. He set up an altar to Zeus in the temple and sacrificed swine to this false god. It was a horrible uh, chapter in the, in the history of Israel. Well, of course, they, like always, needed a deliverer. And in 165 B.C., Judas Maccabeus, Maccabeus the hammer, Judas the hammer arose he led a rebellion against Antiochus Epiphanes, drove them out, and they reconsecrated the temple. They rededicated the, the temple. And so this is the Feast of Dedication. It is commemorating the time that Judas Maccabeus, a deliverer, came. He rose up, and they consecrated the temple once again. Um, the story goes from the Talmud, which was written later, and we don't know whether this is true or whether it is just... Uh, what we might say, uh, legend or midrash. Um, when they reconsecrated the temple, uh, if you remember from the book of Exodus, there was the, 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 the candelabra, the menorah, which was supposed to be lit all the time. Well, it had gone out for a number of years under Antiochus Epiphanes. So they found one flask of oil that had been consecrated by a, a, a priest, one flask that would uh, last for one day. So they thought, well, we'll just light the menorah, the candelabra in, in the temple for that one day because it's prescribed, it's the law, and we will do that. So they lit the candelabra with the oil for one day, and legend has it that it burned for eight, eight days. They saw it as a miracle of God that the candelabra burned for these eight days, and so they instituted the Feast of Dedications, which is also called the Feast of Lights, which we know today as Hanukkah. And that's the story of the background here. Hanukkah, too, is looking forward to a deliverer. Jesus is right there at the Feast of Dedication. He is always fulfilling the feasts that, uh, that he participated in. So the Feast of Dedication, the Feast of Lights, and Jesus is in the portico of Solomon. This is also quite interesting because um, Josephus tells us that this probably is the last bit of Solomon's temple that remained. Um, this is Herod's temple. The, the portico of Solomon um, faced east with like a porch, and it was uh, uh, an, old piece, an old structure, and Jesus is in the portico of Solomon. Uh, it's, it's significant because who built uh, Solomon's temple? The son of David. And Jesus is the ultimate son of David because uh, the Davidic covenant will be fulfilled by Jesus and he will sit on an everlasting kingdom. Uh, 
David did not build the temple because he was a man of bloodshed, but the son of David, Solomon, built it. And Jesus is the ultimate son of David. Here he is in the portico walking. I wonder what he was thinking. Ah, the portico of Solomon, which this was the, the fulfillment. The temple itself was the fulfillment of the end of Exodus. The place that was constructed where, where the Lord's expressed manifest uh, presence would be, would be made known. And then Jesus came and tabernacled amongst us. The word became flesh. He tented amongst us, which is the word tabernacle. And here he is in the last vestige of the portico of Solomon, the last vestige of Solomon's temple, looking back to the past, now in the presence, fulfilling, present fulfilling it, but also looking to the, to the future because the church would gather also at Solomon's portico in Acts Peter would heal a lame beggar in Solomon's portico. Acts 5.12 says this, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. That is the background of Jesus walking. By the way, you know, we call this little section out here the portico. We had a, when we built it, we had a, a contest to name it, and Bob Stearns came up with the portico, and it's really, this section over here is more like the colonnade of the portico because it's, it's longer, and uh, that's where people, God's people, are of one accord, a place of fellowship. So we see Jesus, the, the past, the present, and the future are found in Jesus, the Messiah, walking in the portico of Solomon on the day of dedication, the deliverer has come but they don't see it. They reject him, as they always did. They reject him. Verse 24, the Jews gathered around him. They encircled him, literally, and were saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? You are, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly, how long will you keep us in suspense? It's, it's, a hard, it's hard to know what this phrase means, because literally it means, um, when uh, will you... Uh, how much longer are you going to hold our our souls up? How much longer will you lift up our souls? And if you look, if we remember last week, Jesus said this, I lay down my soul and I take it up. It's the same word. I take up my soul. And they're saying, how long are you going to take up our soul? Hold us in suspension for what is going on. I think there's a clear indication that by those two usages, the, uh, Jesus has the authority to lay down his soul, he has the authority to take it up, and he has the authority to take up their souls as well. He is sovereign. He is over the events. He is in control more than anyone. He is in control of the, the situation. He's in control of his own soul, and he's in control of theirs as well. But it's almost humorous when they say, well, how much, when are you going to tell us? And you almost see Jesus rolling his eyes and saying, Oy vey, you know, how much more evidence do I need to give to you? The whole controversy of his life has been, are you the Messiah? And he has given evidence and evidence, and he's teaching and teaching his words and his works over and over again. I come from my Father. You must believe in me. You'll have life. How many times has he has said these things? My mission is to purchase the sheep, etc., 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 why don't you believe this? Well, they don't believe it because they don't understand it. And they don't understand it because they're not a sheep. But they're saying, if you're the Christ, just tell us. Say it plainly. Say it right out. Say the words, I am the Christ. 
He's not into their games, though, is he? And he's not going to, to, to say what they want him to say. He has communicated very clearly in so many words. Maybe he has not said, I am the Christ, literally, but he has certainly made the point many, many times over again. And he says, um, um, I told you my words, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. The works are the miracles. Uh, He did miracles the first time he was in Jerusalem. He did miracles when he turned water into wine. He did miracles when he walked on water, when he fed the multitude, when when he healed the lame man of 38 years, and most recently when he healed this man born blind, miracle after miracle after miracle. It's like, I've told you, and I've done these works from the Father, Why don't you believe me? And he tells them the reason that they don't believe. You do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. This ties thematically to last week, even though some time has passed, maybe a couple of months that have passed since what we read last week, But it ties to the theme of the good shepherd and his sheep. He's still going to talk about that. Notice he doesn't say, you are not my sheep because you don't believe. He says, you do not believe because you're not my sheep. I've not called you to be my sheep. That's why you don't believe. This is, once again, the doctrine of election. Can you overturn an election? Get it? No, get it. (laughs) You can't overturn this election, okay? Remember what? Let me just refresh your mind. John 6, 43 through 44, Jesus says, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 65, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. 8.43, why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. 8.47, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. And so here we are saying the same thing. The reason that you do not believe in me and believe my words and my works is because you are not my sheep. They do not have ears to hear They are dead and not alive. The natural man, the person who is not a believer, cannot, not will not, cannot understand the things of God, for they are spiritually appraised. Quick lesson here, okay? The words and works of the Father and the Son will always be rejected by those who are not his sheep. Always. Those who are not his sheep will not accept his words. And the reason they don't accept his words is because they are not his sheep. With that, of course, is this, that his words and his works are sufficient to believe. What he has said and what he has done is enough. It is enough for our salvation. It is enough for people to believe. All of us, this room is full of people who believe because it was sufficient for us. And he called our names and we believed in him because he is our shepherd and we are his sheep. It is sufficient to believe. And so we must, if you don't believe, you may this morning, 
And Jesus will give an invitation. And he always does in all of these, these passages about election and, and you're, not, you know, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. And over and over again, he always gives a clear invitation for people to graciously believe. Okay, right, let's move on to the second session, section where we want to spend uh, the bulk of some time here. The words and the works of the Father and the Son promise a salvation that can never be lost. The words of Jesus, the words of the Father, the works of Jesus, the works of the Father, they promise and they procure, they, they buy for us, they get for us, they give to us a salvation that is inter- eternal and can never, ever be lost by any of us. It is absolutely impossible. He says in verse uh, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He said to them, You're not my sheep, and that's why you don't believe. But my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep, they belong to him. How did they become his sheep? He purchased them. He laid down his life for the sheep. That's what the good shepherd does. He bought them. They belong to him. And they hear his voice, the voice of calling them to salvation, and the, and the voice that he continues to call us to walk with him. And they follow him. It's one of the signs of a sheep. They follow the shepherd. Quick application verse, from verse 27. How can you know you are his sheep? How can you personally know that you are his sheep? Do you believe in him? Yes. Did you hear his voice? Did you? Do you follow him? But verse 27, that, that, that's pretty simple. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. And from the previous verse, you have to believe in him too, right? So you can know that you're one of his sheep if you believe in him. If you have heard his voice and answered the call, and if you follow him. That part's pretty important, to follow him, because many people say, yeah, I believe that stuff, and they don't follow him. They just follow the world, and they follow themselves. The following is, uh, is a result of being a sheep. It is not the cause of becoming a sheep. Sheep follow, why? Because they are sheep, because they belong to the shepherd. So he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And moving on in verses 28 through 30. By the way, you might want to memorize verses 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the Father are one. We sing about deep truths. This is a deep truth that we want God to pull us into this morning for us to lay hold of and to live out because this is the essence of our salvation and our sheepness, if you will. This is who we are. This is who we are. So I want to give ten reasons that your salvation is secure. From these, these verses. Ten reasons. Number one, Jesus gave his life for the sheep to buy you. We saw that last week. I lay down my life for the sheep. He gave his life. He died. He took it up. He rose again for you, to purchase you, to buy you. Not at an auction, 
but with his life to redeem you from death itself and sin. The good shepherd protects his sheep from all predators, therefore. This is the son's part in salvation, that he would give his life for the sheep. Number two, this salvation, it is given by the son as a gift. Notice he says, I give eternal life to them. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them before the foundation of the world, that we would follow the shepherd. But he gives it to us as a, as a gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It cannot be earned, and it is not deserved by any one of us. Amen? Not a single one of us. Number three, eternal life is, by definition, eternal. Pretty simple, right? I was reading a pastor this week by the name of Cole, and I thought that was brilliant. Eternal life, by definition, is eternal. It's not until you die. It's not for a time. It's not if you decide you don't want it anymore. When he gives you eternal life, you have eternal life right this moment. This is the testimony that God has given to you eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you will know that you have, present tense, eternal life. 1 John 5:11 through 13. Memorize that one too. He's given you eternal life. You have it today. By definition, you have eternal life now and forever. Number four, it is given with a promise. And the promise is you will never perish, which means you'll never be destroyed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. Same word. You cannot be destroyed in eternity. You cannot be destroyed in this life, but you will have everlasting life by your faith in him. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. Never. Notice the word. You will not perish because you belong to him and because he has bought you. It is a promise that is given to you. Number five, no one, no thing can pull you away. Part of the same promise. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one. There is no one and no thing that can snatch you out of the hands of the shepherd. This is part of the promise. No one is going to snatch you away. It's the same word that Jesus used of the wolf. The wolf comes, the false shepherd runs away. What does the wolf do? He snatches the sheep and he scatters the sheep. But Jesus said, no, I'm the good shepherd. No one's going to snatch you. No wolf, no nothing, no anything can snatch you from his hands because you belong to him. Just imagine that. When I was a a young believer, um, man, I did some crazy things. Anyway, I was reading the the Friday newspaper in Pocatello, Idaho, and there was a religious section, and there was this thing 
about this evangelist who was coming to a certain church. And in the story, he, he talked about people losing their salvation. I thought, what? Losing your salvation? I need to talk to this guy. So I called up this church, and I've only been a Christian for a short time. And uh, I, I said, can I, so who's, who's this guy that's going to be speaking as a series of evangelistic meetings? And I, I want to talk to him. He happens to be right here, and he put him, they put him on the phone. And so I asked him. I'm a new Christian. I told him, and I, I, I've never heard of such a thing. It doesn't make any sense to me. How can a Christian lose their salvation? He said, oh, it's really very simple. You see, it's like when you, when you believe in Jesus, you get on the bus, and you're on your way to heaven. But it says, as the bus goes along, if you decide you want to get off the bus, then you get off the bus. No, it doesn't work that way. There's no bus in the Bible, okay, first of all. It's not a very good illustration. It's quite lousy, in fact. It doesn't work at all. There is no bus. You cannot, you will not. Jesus, what does Jesus say right here? Are you going to take the words of Jesus? They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. No one can pull you away. Which brings us to number six. We are in the hands of the good shepherd. Ah. You're in his hands. Imagine the thought. Someone thinking that someone can pull you out of Jesus' hands. No. Same, again, the, the word snatch. The wolf can't pull you away, snatch you away. You can't pull yourself away, let alone anyone else. Number seven, the father gave the sheep to the son. Now we're getting to see the words and the works of the father and the son are working together. He says, my father has given them to me. Remember back in chapter 6, verse 39, Jesus said, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose Nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Every believer, every sheep that the Father gives into the hand of the Son of God, the Good Shepherd, he is not going to lose one. I don't know what happened to that one. He just got away from me. It doesn't happen. He loses nothing. And he will raise us all up on the last day because we are his sheep. Number eight. The Father who gives life is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. My Father, who has given them to me, He's greater than all. He is the greatest. He's, he has dominion over all things. He has power over all things. He is the ultimate authority in all of the universe. And this ultimate authority has given us into the hands of the Good Shepherd and say, says, they belong to you. The Father has done it. And we can trust in that great promise as well. He is greater than anything or anyone, and nothing can derail or despoil or destroy your salvation. Nothing and no one. Number nine, therefore, quite simply because of that, it is impossible to reverse what God has willed. Your salvation. The promise, think about this for a minute. Read, uh, he, he says in verse 28, 
I give eternal life to them. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of the hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The promise that no one will snatch you out of Jesus' hands is based on the impossibility that anybody can. Because the Father is omnipotent and greater than all, and He has decided this, and it is not possible. No one is able, no one has the power. It cannot happen. It is an utter impossibility. And number 10, the Father and the Son are one. That's the bottom line. Combined together, the Father and the Son work together in our salvation and nothing can invalidate that. It is an impossibility because the Father and the Son, their words and their works working together, we belong to them. I understand the the statement, I and the Father are one. That's what they're upset with because he's claiming to be equal, equal with God. But we have to remember that Jesus makes this statement about equality with God, the Father, in the context of their combined and unified work of salvation on our behalf. They are one in essence, but they are one in person and one in efficacy in our calling to salvation. In my first church, I was in a very small town. There were just a couple of churches there, and there was one guy who always wanted to come to my office and argue. He just wanted to debate, you know. And there were two, two things he wanted to debate. One was baptism and salvation. Do you have to be baptized in order to be saved? He believed, yes, you did. The second one was, can you lose your salvation? He believed, yes, you can. And so we, 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 we debated this. Finally, it came to me after a few meetings. I, I said, you know, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, can I, must I be baptized in order to be saved? The question is not, can I lose my salvation? The question is, what is the essence of salvation? If you know what salvation is, those few verses, and they're just a few, they just fit perfectly into your understanding. Hermeneutics, one of the principles of human hermeneutics, interpretation of the Bible, is that we interpret that which is unclear by that which is clear. So we have a few verses that talk about baptism and salvation. seem a little unclear. We have a few verses that talk about losing your salvation. It's quite unclear. But if you understand what the Bible says about salvation, which is quite clear, then you can, you can interpret those other passages based upon what is clear. So I have another list for you, okay? The nature of salvation. Number one, you were dead. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Next, you are now alive. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. You've heard me say this before. What can a dead person do? The answer is nothing. And you are now alive by grace. Next, you are now seated with Christ in heaven. Principally, 
In, in, in a spiritual sense, you are in Christ, in Christ and with him in heaven because he says in verses 6 and 7, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Isn't someone going to pluck you down from heaven, snatch you away, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We were dead, he made us alive, and he raised us up with Christ because we are in him. And we will always be in him and with him. Next, you are regenerate by his spirit. Titus 3, 5, he saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Not by deeds which we have done in righteousness. If you can lose your salvation by sinning, guess what? We're all lost. Every one of us. You have a new nature, Ephesians 4.24. Put on the new self, the new self, which is created in the likeness of God. And you have been created in righteousness, in holiness of the truth. That is your new nature, your new identity. That is the essence and the nature of salvation. Next, you have been given the Holy Spirit forever. Forever. John 14, 16, and 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples. I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides in you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit is given to you Forever, not till you decide to get off the bus. Ain't going to happen. Next, Jesus Christ dwells in you. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And next, you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Paul said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. And finally, as is said throughout the scripture over and over and over again, salvation is of the Lord. It's God's work. You know what? You can't get off the bus because you won't. If you are a true sheep, there's no desire. You might doubt from time to time. You might struggle. You might sin. But you're not going to want to get off the bus because you belong to him. Sheep don't do that. It's impossible. I have six kids. And um, I, I, you hear about families that uh, break up and they have bad relationships with their kids. There might be some people in this room with heartaches because they're uh, separated from their kids. And the whole idea of people... Um, divorcing their parents, things like that. Uh, my kids, I have a great relationship 
But if one of them decided to divorce me, still my child, nothing can change that. It's an impossibility, right? Because they have been conceived and born by my wife and I. They belong to us. Nothing will ever change the fact that they are our children. And so it is true in the physical realm. It is even more true in the spiritual realm. In fact, we can no more cease to be God's children than Jesus can cease to be God's son. That is how secure you are in your salvation in Jesus Christ. The lesson, I mean, you've got all the lessons right there, but I'll just sum it up this way. The words and the works of the Father and the Son guarantee, guarantee your salvation. And they do it together. Lastly, in verses 31 through 42, and we'll have to cover this quickly, the words and the works of the Father and the Son will divide the sheep from the goats. It will happen. It says this, uh, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus, this is, the, this is the second time that they wanted to stone him. They've wanted to seize him and arrest him and kill him many times. But there are two times. One was at the end of uh, uh, chapter 8 when he said, uh, before Abraham was born, I am... And they picked up stones to stone him then. And now when he says, I and the Father are one, they want to stone him. And he said, why do you want to, why do you want to stone me? I, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them do, are you stoning me? Because I healed the man, because I fed the multitude, because I uh, 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 healed the man that was born blind. Which one of them is it, by the way? Or is it that I gave my sheep eternal life? They said, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Is it blasphemy to say that you are God? Ask Antiochus of Epiphany. Yes, if you're not God. If you are, it's not blasphemy. They just don't understand. They can't conceive that, a, that he could be a man and God at the same time. Why can't they not conceive? Because they are not his sheep. So he said, and he, and he goes to uh, Psalm 82. 86, 82 rather. And he says, Has it not been written in your law, I say that you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, and the, the scripture cannot uh, be overturned, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? He's referring to Psalm 82, and, and here the rulers of Israel are called out for dealing falsely with the people. These are false shepherds. And in this, in this psalm, they are called Elohim, gods, and they are also called sons of the Most High. Jesus just called himself Son of God. So the argument is from the lesser to the greater, in which, where he's saying, is if there is some sense where in the Bible, which is inspired and is absolutely correct, calls a human being gods, how much more appropriate is it to apply that designation to the one whom God has sent to be the Redeemer, the Son of God? That's his argument. Because God has set him apart, and he is called the Son of God. And then he says in verses 37 and 38, I do not do, if I do not do the works of my Father, 
then do not, don't believe me. If I'm not doing the works that are really from, my God, from, from the Father, don't believe me. I don't expect you. I think it's a, I understand I'm making a pretty brash claim that I'm, I'm one with the Father, that I am, that I am the Son of God, but if I don't back it up with works, yeah, don't believe me. But if I do them, and you don't believe that I do, he says, do believe the works. This is the gracious call in the midst of being very tough with these people, he leaves the door open and he says, I'm asking you to believe. I'm calling you to believe the works. Why? So that you will understand as a sheep that I am one with the Father and the Father is one with me, just as I have said. But you have to believe. You have to believe what I have said. Verses 39 through 42 are a bit of an epilogue then. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. Um, We again see a divided response like we saw last week. Some said he was insane. Don't listen to him. Others said, you know, well, I don't know. Well, here's the insanity part right here. These people, this is the final rejection before the ultimate rejection. We see this response. They do not believe, and they cannot understand and so they seek to arrest him to take him away for stoning but he eludes their grasp but then we see another group and he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing and he was staying there many came to him and were saying while John performed no sign yet everything John said about this man was true many believed in him there some wanted to stone him Some believed him. He walks in the temple, the place where you would think that people would understand and believe that the deliverer, the Messiah, is right here talking to us. In the place of the greatest revelation of who he is, they disbelieve. But he goes away. It's interesting because this takes us back to the beginning of the story, doesn't it? The baptism of John introduced the Messiah The baptism of Jesus inaugurated his ministry. And there seems to be something foreboding here, as if things are about to change. And they are. He was staying there, and some came to believe in him. The conclusion. Have you ever doubted your salvation? By the words and the works of the Father and the Son... Your salvation is secure. And I hope you can leave here this morning with great joy, knowing that you belong to him because you believe, you've heard his voice, and you are following him. And I close with these words from Jesus in Matthew 25. Listen very carefully again to shepherding uh, words. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, that's to you sheep, who hear his voice, who believe in him, follow him, who belong to him, whom he has purchased, you who are secure in his hands, he will say to us, his sheep, 
Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Amen. Father, we're grateful that you've given to us a gift that cannot be lost. Pray that we would continue to hear your voice and follow you as sheep who love their shepherd. Thank you for our good shepherd who loves us and protects us. It is in his name that we pray these things. Amen.